If there's one thing that gets me frustrated in life, it's people who always seem to get a free ride. You know the ones? You know, they don't really care what goes on. They get out of trouble every time. It's so frustrating. I don't get what they deserve. I have a friend who's like this. It just seems that for him, everything always works out. He'll lose a job and the next day he'll have a new one with better income in a better place. And it all just works out well. And I'm like, he doesn't plan. It just annoys me. You know, he, he, he decides to go on holidays with his mates. And so they, they go on holidays, no idea where they're going to stay. And then they meet someone with some palace who invites them to stay for a week. I'm like, who does that? It's so frustrating. He's like a cat, always lands on his feet. I don't know what frustrates me more about it, the fact that he never gets what he deserves or the fact that it never happens to me. One way or the other, I just, I'm frustrated. Right? If people don't plan, it's only right, they should, right that their life should be a mess, isn't it? Like it just, It's the way it should be. It's just how it is. When it comes to God, there's a temptation for us to have a similar response. There's no such thing as a free lunch. You know, if you want a good relationship with God, you've got to put in the hard yards. No pain, no gain, right? That's exactly what Jesus had just said earlier to the people who'd been listening to him. If you want to be my disciple, you remember, if you want to follow me, you need to give up your very life. Take up your cross and follow me, he has just said. If you want to be my disciple, you need to give up it all. I must come first in every area of life or you haven't understood me at all. If you want the benefits I bring, you need to listen to the king. There you go. It's corny, but it's catchy. If you want the benefits I bring, you need to listen to the king. That's how Luke ended last week's section. If you look at verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 35, it should be on the screen. Anyone who has ears to hear should listen. That's how he ends it. But then look what he does next. Luke tells us in 15, verse 1, all the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. It's like at this moment, everyone's expecting Cinderella to come waltzing in and up to Jesus. What they get is the ugly stepsisters. They get sinners and tax collectors. Luke tells us that the ones who were hard out for Jesus, the ones who gave it all up to follow him, were not the respectable and religious, but the social scum of society, the tax collectors and sinners. If you want kind of a a breakfast comparison, they're the marmite of the social spread collection. You ever know what marmite is? Uh, You might like Marmite, and I'm sorry about that, Um, but I want to be very clear. Marmite is made by scraping the barrel or the vat of the leftover yeast when you make beer, right? And they kind of put that into a paste, add salt, and go, there you go. We should feed that to Australians and New Zealanders, and you guys will love it, right? It's gross. It's disgusting. Someone's going, what are we going to do with this stuff? How can we we make it edible? And so they, they fix it all together. That's what these tax collectors and sinners are like in the society at this time. They're the scum, the scrapings of the barrel. So you can imagine the frustration of these scribes and Pharisees who've been working hard to do all they can to make sure what Jesus is saying is in line with what's been said in the scriptures before them. After all, they were God's own people. They were the Jews. We're, we're the ones who've been given the promise from God. We're people who plan carefully, who walk carefully. We make wise choices. We stick to the law. We, we don't get ourselves into debt. We educate ourselves. These guys have got their lives together. They're respectable. They don't raise even one social eyebrow ever. They kind of stick to all the kind of right social things. But these tax collectors and sinners, everywhere they went, eyebrows were raised. Look at them. Little whispers. Look at how they rip off their own people, these tax collectors, and and make money off us and the Romans. And 
Look at how they live loose lives and don't take the word of God seriously. They were a mess. While the Pharisees might have remained cool, calm and collected on the outside, Luke tells us that they were complaining. What makes these sinners and tax collectors think they have a place within God's people? They're not our type of people. They don't work hard. They haven't followed God's ways. And then Jesus turns up and they come running back to him. How dare they? How dare he? What is he thinking eating with them? They don't deserve to be part of our nation, our future. Who are these people? It's interesting to note that when the sinner and the religious stand before Jesus, that he often sides with the sinner and rebukes the religious. The fact that the sinners and tax collectors had nothing to offer was obvious. They knew they were lost. But the religiosity and the respectability of the Pharisees had blinded them to how far they too had wandered from home as well. And so what follows are three parables that fell these tax collectors and sinners puffed up pride like an axeman taking three swings at a tree. He brings them down, showing three things. Number one, the incredible nature of God. The incredible nature of God. Number two, that they've missed the nature of their own need. And number three, because of that, they're in danger of missing out on true joy. And so are we. We too are in danger of missing out of true joy. It's a profound passage of Scripture today, not because it's unknown or new. Uh, whether you know the Bible or not, the story of the prodigal son has come into language, it's common vernacular. It's profound, though, because it's, its effect on bringing into clear focus ourselves, our God, and how we need to be joyful. So the first thing we see is the nature of God. What is God like? You know, just sit for a second and think. What is the first idea that comes to your head? How would you describe what he is like? For some people, they come along and they think of this God figure like a controlling father with a holster full of lightning bolts, sitting up in heaven going, you did the wrong thing. Get back. You didn't treat me as you should have. You haven't used your money the way you should have. You said that thing. Others of us have a, a picture of God that's kind of more removed, like some sort of puppeteer in the sky, pulling the strings in the game of life, uncaring about what goes on, oblivious to its effects and concerns. Others come along and see God more as like a, a Santa Claus figure. You know, you give me what I want, and as long as my nice outweighs my naughty, then I'll be fine and everything will be, be good, right? That's, that's what life is about. Others treat God as some sort of cosmic vending machine, I'll send up a $2 prayer and then you rain down the goods from on high and I'll collect. Others still see him as, see him as someone who's odd and irrelevant. Some old guy in the clouds. Probably doesn't remember anything anymore anyway. Just kind of giggles to himself. Kind of inept. Nothing to do. Jesus, through these parables, shows that God is nothing like any of these views we have of him. He's not controlling and vindictive. He's not disinterested and distant and disconnected from us. He is the God who passionately seeks those who've wandered from him. Longing to welcome the lost back. The first parable is, is a parable of, of a sheep that Sarah read for us. Uh, this sheep who has gotten lost and, and the shepherd who chases after the one sheep and, and at a great risk to the 99 he leaves behind searches out this wayward sheep. Economically, it's stupid. 
1%, if you do your maths right. It's, it's so inconsequential, right? $100 in 10000 You're going to risk $9,000 for the, for the one, sorry, $9,900 for, for the extra $100 that's left? It's, so in, it's inconsequential for him, isn't it? But not to God. Not to God. He will not lose any of his sheep. Second parable, we get a picture of a woman who is in search of a, of a coin that she's dropped in her house. And the kind of first century, the houses, they didn't have carpeted floors and kind of cornices around and nice lighting. They were fairly much mud brick houses. They were dark and, and dusty and there was stuff in there and you know, just lots of stuff and lots of dirt. And you drop your coins, it can be easy to lose something in the ground. This woman, when she drops this coin lights a lamp at cost to herself, searches through her house, sweeping every nook and cranny, looking everywhere to find this last coin for her. It will not be lost. And in the third parable, we have a father waiting, longing for his wayward son to return home. Have a listen to 15 verse 20. While the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran through his arms around his neck and kissed him. The nature of the God that we meet in the pages of Scripture and the pages of history is a God that's not so busy with other things. He has no concern for his children. He is not so economically driven that he's willing to call it collateral damage. Oh, well. He's not so angry that he would drive the rebellious child away. He's the God who made you and me. And the God who loves you and me. He's the God who deeply cares for every single person. And that includes people as ugly and sinful and wayward as, as us. It's not just that he mildly cares either. He rejoices. In that first story, you kind of see it. Picture the face of the shepherd when he finds his sheep. He hoists that sheep up onto his shoulders so happy. I found my sheep and he walks home. He can't help but call out to his friends and neighbors, rejoice with me, celebrate because I found my lost sheep. You can kind of see his face. And then Jesus says in verse 7 of chapter 15, I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. Now the point here isn't, oh, who are the righteous ones? The point is to look at the character and nature of this God He's the God who seeks out the lost and the wandering. You notice the sheep, the coin, none of them do one single thing to contribute to finding themselves. They just go the wrong direction or sit lost in some bit of dust in a house. Yet each is sought by their owner. The nature of this God is that he will not leave us to our own devices to find our way home. He is the shepherd who seeks out the lost. A little bit further on in the story of Luke, uh, Jesus himself tells us that he is that shepherd. Uh, look at Luke 19, verse 10. He says, speaking of himself, the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. As Jesus describes to these Pharisees the nature of God and shows it clearly to us, he's actually saying, I am God. I am the one who has left the comfort and community of my Father's side and become flesh. I'm the one who will undergo a horrific death in your place and suffer estrangement from my father. Why? So that those who wander, so that you and I could know our God. That's what brings him great joy. 
We have a God whose nature is phenomenally loving, who actively seeks out the lost. He is no vindictive God. He is good. But it begs the question, am I really that lost? As we sit here today, I don't feel very lost. I know where I am. I'm in a cinema. You know, we're in St. Luke's. I don't know how to get here, hopefully, or some little map thing will take me the way home. Uh, you know, in life, we've generally got things together enough to be able to come out on a Sunday morning. Are we really lost? Our natural inclination is to view ourselves so often as okay. Sure, life has its ups and downs, but lost? I guess most of us feel respectable. Uh, maybe some of us even religious. But maybe for others of us here, we recognize there is a lostness to where we're at in life. We know that we've done and said things that we shouldn't have. We know all too well that we deserve God's judgment. The question is, have I gone too far? Am I too far lost? Well, in the last parable, Jesus answers both questions. Why am I lost? And have I gone too far? In the nature of our need. Look at verse 11 of chapter 15. He also said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the youngest son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. This youngest son, you kind of see it in his eyes. I want to be my own man, the self-made man. I want my father's goods, but not his guidance. He wants the possessions but not his father's prominence in his life. Literally, he is wishing his dad was as good as dead so he can get his share of the inheritance. You are nothing but your goods to me, dad. And so he walks. How many of us at times live and act in exactly the same way toward God? We want his goods, but not his guidance. We want his possessions, but not his prominence in our life. Yet when you look at what we've done with the good things that God has given us, we've used the gifts he has, the life we have, the breath of air that is in our lungs, we've used it all in isolation from him. We've abused it in ways that he has not intended. I mean, look at creation, look at the world around us, look at relationships and wars and greediness and self-satisfaction. Walking away from the one who gives the good gifts and ignoring him is a picture of sin, the Bible calls it. Rejecting the God who made us. The father in his wisdom gives his child exactly what he asks for. He has a number of responses that are possible, doesn't he? No, you can't have it. He could be the controlling father. No, you're not going to touch it. Get lost, you'll just stuff it. Or he could have said, why don't you just take a little bit? And if you do it a good with a small amount, then I'll kind of trickle in a little bit more. Could have set up a graduated investment plan that gave returns throughout his life. So as he had more maturity, maybe he could have spent it in other ways. But he knows better than that. For he wants to win the son, not his goods. Abuse is exactly how the son responds. He blows the whole lot. You've got to remember, this inheritance isn't just something that the dad has earned. It's probably been in the family for centuries, probably building for year after year after decade after decade. 
this family who's been gathering together their, their kind of land, and this is all that belongs to them. And now, well, half of it's gone, disappeared. You can't hit Command Z and undo decisions like this. How often in life do you wish you could? How often in life do you think you could hit the undo button and just go back to where we were before? He can't. It's too late. It's all gone. Then famine hits. Younger brother's got nothing. He's, he's forced to feed pigs. The shame of what he's become hits rock bottom. Here is a picture of the social scum of the earth. Pigs were not clean to Jews. He's in a foreign land outside of God's blessing, away from God and his people, feeding pigs, and he can't even eat what the pigs eat. It's literally like he's been smeared in Marmite. Even that's too good. Then he has a moment. Verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, Many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food. And here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired hands. So he got up and he went to his father. You see his brokenness, don't you? You see he's realized his own stupidity that he he can do nothing from this point on. (laughs) His dad was so good and so generous. He's not even asking to come back as a son. He he wants to just come back as as a servant. He's recognized that all that he has done towards his dad and towards God, he's recognizing that even the crumbs that fall from his father's table would satisfy him more than everything the world has to offer. What stupid, foolish man I've been. And the focus here is, not on this boy working his way back into a relationship with his dad. He's, he's not going, you know what, I'm going to go back, I'm going to work hard, then maybe dad will, will get me back in the family again, and I can slowly earn his trust back, and then I'll, I'll get more of the goodness that's coming. He's, he's not doing that at all. He, he's not thinking that I can come back and work my way in. The focus here is, is, his focus is on the incredible goodness and generosity that he is so foolishly traded for the fleeting pleasures of sin. Son thinks he's gone too far. Sonship's off the table. Simply just being the lucky boy is what he's happy for. For some of you here today, that might be your experience of your relationship with God too. That little voice whispers in your ear, you've done too much. That thing you did was, was too far. A little voice never lets the guilt Um, go away. It kind of keeps that guilt of the things you've said and done and thought and it brings it to the forefront and makes you and I say, it's too much. It's over. You can't come back to God. Whether it's an abortion you've had, whether it's an affair you've, you've tripped into, a relationship that you're in that you know you shouldn't be, whether it's things you've done with finance, or with your freedom, or with your time, or with your money. Satan whispers just three words in your ear, and it causes us to run. It's too much. But for this son, the memory of the nature of his father causes him to go back. 
before he's even in the house. The father has seen him from far. Have a look at verse 20 of chapter 15. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran through his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his slaves, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. Let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. What a dad. Like that is a picture of fatherhood, isn't it? The first reaction of the father, who's waiting, by the way, watching, longing for the moment that this son returns home, that his plan where he entrusted him to squander the inheritance would actually come to fulfillment and he'd see the stupidity of what he's done and that he would come back in. The father's waiting for that day. He sees him in the distance and he runs. Now, Middle Eastern men don't run. Uh, yes, there's some in the Olympics, I know, but this is culturally not what goes on. He, he picks up his kind of... He's dressed and runs toward his son. It's not dignified. He doesn't care what others think about him. All he cares about is this son who has come home. The son's trying to get out his confession. Father, and, and, and the father's just like, shut up. I love you. <laughs> just, just kill the calf. Come back in. I'm so glad to see you. And he embraces his son and kisses him. I want you to feel this moment for a second. I want you to imagine that, that, that person in your life that you would love to come home. To come home from a life of rebellion. To come home from alienation from your family. From alienation from your friendship. That person that you long to come home from their unbelief or from their hard-heartedness. And I want you to imagine what it would be like to see them coming back the brokenness in their face and to reach out and to embrace them and to kiss them. You need to know that this is the way God acts. This is his nature. He does not hold his children at arm's length because of Jesus' death in your place. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've said, he welcomes you home, warts, warts and all. Jesus didn't have to include these kind of vivid, emotion-laden details in the parable. He could have just said the son came back, the father forgave him, that's what happened and moved on. But he includes the details so that we understand what our God is like. He is an emotional God. He wants you to feel something here about the way God welcomes you and me and every other ugly sinner back to him. He's an amazing God. There is none like him. If there's any sense in which you look at your life and you say, I've gone too far. He won't have me back. Today, see the nature and the character of this God. He is the God who seeks and saves the lost. And lost is what we are. Whatever you've done, whatever you've become, come back to God. But the parable doesn't end there. There is another son who, in fact, is part of the whole point of the whole three parables. The oldest son has been working hard on the land, who's kind of lived a good life. Here's there's a party going on. 
He comes and asks the slave, what's going on? And his ears are met with the answer he was dreading. The brother is back. And he's furious. How dare my younger brother show his sinful, ugly face back here? Typical of younger brother, isn't it? It's all too easy for him. He runs it, squanders it, and dad, the fool, invites him back in. How dare he? The older brother is repulsed. He's angry. He's so angry. He won't go back into the party. He won't go into the house. He doesn't want to go into any house that has a brother like that or a father like that. Stupid old fool. You kind of get it, don't you? Here comes dad rescuing my thieving, squandering brother, ruining all my hard work. This party is mine. It's my share of the inheritance and he's burning it on that guy. I've earned it. How dare he? What's interesting to note is that it wasn't just the youngest son that the father had to walk out to and wait for. He also had to leave the party, the banquet, the celebration that had been put on about God bringing people back to himself. The father had to go out to the older son too. And that's when we see there's been a problem with this older brother all along. Look at verse 29. But he replied to his father, Look, I've been slaving many years for you, and I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. When this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered, slaughtered the fattened calf for him. There's a problem with the older brother's heart as well. Did you notice it? I've been slaving for you, dad. Slaving. I thought he was a son. I thought this family inheritance was part of what the family were to do together. I thought they were in this together. But he calls his work slaving. In other words, he was doing it not for the father or for relationship with the father, but just to get something out himself. All this time and energy and effort and obedience and everything he'd been doing was just to get his share of the reward, reward too. Oh, the brothers aren't that different, are they? He's been in the same house as the father, but not with the father the whole time. The older brother is just as lost to the father as the younger brother. He's just, it's just that he didn't know it. He's saying, Dad, you owe me. I've been working hard for you. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you're thinking to yourself, God, you owe me. I've gone to church every Sunday. I've made sacrifices for you. I married one of your type of people. I, I, I even, you know, I read the Bible each, each week and I actually want to read it. Come on, God. <laughs> you know, I pray, I don't get drunk, I don't sleep around, I don't take drugs, I don't gamble. You owe me. You owe me. God, why am I still single? Look at how much I was slave to serve you. You owe me this. God, why have I got a marriage that's working out this way? Come on, God, look at how much I've given you. Why, God, don't people like me? Why aren't I popular with my friends? Why is my business sinking? Why is my health deteriorating? Why isn't my ministry growing? Come on, God, pay up. You owe me. 
Ever found yourself there? Just with a thought? You see it in a church context too. People who say, look, we've worked really hard to start up this church. And then a new group of people come along. They're wild, they're rebellious, they're wacky. They've got crazy lives, but they come to Jesus. They're captured by him. Stories like Sheila's, not saying she's wild and wacky. (laughs) But people who come along and who are different from us. They might have a different way of singing or they might change the style of a service. It might be changing the makeup of the congregation. And we go, come on, God, this is not the church I originally sought out to find. I wanted a church that was just like me. And now you're bringing others that are unlike me in and I don't like it anymore. I've slaved so long. Do you know how long I was on that pack and save team for that stupid church? And then this is what happens. It changes on me. And now I've got to go find another one. And I like these comfy seats. I like coming to the cinema and having undercover parking when it rains. I don't want to move to a new building just because more people can fit in. I don't want to stretch myself financially. God, you owe me. I just want to sit here and enjoy being a lifestyle Christian. If this is us, we need to stop. We need to realize at this point that the older brother is left outside the party. He's not in. He thinks he's in. He thinks he's in the family business. He thinks the inheritance is coming to him, but the party's going on inside and he is not there. He refuses to go in. And maybe this is part of you. Maybe this is your condition. Even though you've kept all the rules, you just have missed the heart and nature of God. You haven't recognized the callousness of our own hearts that we think God owes us something. We're on the outside waiting for God to prove himself before we go all in. Friends, all of us are lost. There are no righteous 99 on the earth. All of us have wandered away from God in one way or the other. Some of us, it's real obvious too. Others, we hide it behind respectability and religiosity. Both brothers in this story have the need to repent. Both of them sin by misunderstanding the nature of what it is to be a son. They both thought they earned it. Today, we need to hear the voice of the loving father, the words of Jesus. Come back to me. There's a story uh, in a book by a guy who I've forgotten his name. I didn't write it down. Um, you might tell me later. And uh, Basically, a story of, um, I think his name's Max, someone, Christian book. Anyway, we'll get there. A uh, story of, of a woman from Brazil. Uh, you may have heard it. It's pretty well known. Uh, this woman from Brazil uh, ha- had a, a young daughter. The daughter very much was like this, this son. She just went, look, I want out. She left the, the single mum, went away and just went off. And knew she didn't, the mum knew she didn't have any money. She knew where, where the daughter would end up, that she'd do anything for food. And so with all the money that the mum had left, she went and, and, and went down and took photos of herself in a photo booth. She sat in a photo booth and she just got picture after picture. She spent, spent all her money on this photo booth. She cut up the little pictures and she went every place she thought in that whole city where her daughter might be. And she stuck a photo on every single wall where she could find it. This daughter of hers, like this prodigal son who'd wandered she had found herself doing all sorts of things that she never thought she would have done. And one day when she's at the bottom of the pit, she walks down into the lobby of the, of the hotel place she was staying where she'd just done things she shouldn't have done with anyone. And she looked up on the wall and sees a photo of her mum. 
She walks over and she, and she picks it. She pulls the photo off and she turns it and notices that something written on the back. And on the back of the photo, it says these words. Daughter, whatever you have done, whatever you have become, just come home. The worst thing that can happen to us as Christians is not that we fall into sin, but that we refuse to repent from it. The worst thing that can happen to us as Christians is not that we fall into sin, but that we refuse to repent from it. God is saying to us all today, whether it's the, the callous heart of the respectable and religious or the wandering loose heart of the sinner and tax collector in us, that we need to come back to him. Come home. If that's you today, I want to encourage you, make a stand. I'm going to pray a prayer in a moment that will allow you to do that. But as you look to the Father, there's one more thing that we need to see. As we see him as he is, it's a cause for real joy. Real joy. In the parable of a lost coin, the woman, she probably spent more on the party that she threw for her friends than the coin was actually worth. You're like, what a fool. (laughs) Who would do that? That's exactly the point. God has most definitely spent more on his search and rescue operation for you and me and more on the celebration that he is throwing than the worth of every single person that has ever lived. It cost the son of God his life. The wrath that we deserve was poured out on Jesus. Friends, I'm far too constrained in my joy at my own repentance at the times I recognize I need to come back to Jesus and far too constrained in my joy in the repentance of others, of of stories of people coming to know Jesus and putting Jesus first every day. That is a miracle. There's a party going on in heaven in the presence of the angels, Jesus says. Do you know who's in the presence of angels? Only one, God. God is celebrating when people come back to him. He is like the father who hugs and kisses and lavishes on us eternal life. Yet I'm far too constrained in my joy. We scream at the rugby. We sing out at concerts. But when it comes to seeing people move from death to life, we keep that tight upper lip. That's great. Good work. No. No. We're to be a church and people that are joyful because our God is joyful. We'll never outdo God in our joy, but we must respond to the work of God, causing repentance to be more in line with God's response than our culturally curtailed responses. The joy of Jesus has no price tag. Have you seen that joy? Are you expressing that joy when friends and family come to know Jesus? When people who you think shouldn't recognize the depth of their depravity and come into the kingdom that God has offered? Do you let that joy shape what you do with your life? And when you get up each day and recognize that the Father has come to us again, even though we don't deserve it, and lavished his goodness on us in his Son. Does God love me? Yes. Look at the cross. And there we see God's love poured out for us. Jesus didn't end these parables, though, with a, so go and do likewise. Luke didn't end the chapter with a, go imitate Jesus. That's what you need to do. The point is to see Jesus as he is, to marvel at him, 
understand what type of person he is and see the love that he has for, for you and me. Love we don't deserve, love like no other. And to simply soak in the goodness of Jesus. To saturate our souls with who he is and what he's done. To watch him, to listen to him, to stand in awe of him, to let him overwhelm us with the way he is. When was the last time you were overwhelmed at how great our God is and what Jesus has done? Friends, I hope it's today as we hear him in his word, speak to us by his spirit. That we would resolve never again to be undercooked in our joy. Never. But like our father. Joyful in our response. Because as we look at Jesus, then and only then will we worship him. As we look at his words to us, whatever you've done, whatever you've become, come home and rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you are a God who treats us not as we deserve, but treats us in line with your goodness and generosity and lavishness. Today, Lord, we admit that we don't treat you as we ought. That we are guilty of taking the goods and ignoring your guidance. We are guilty of taking the gifts and ignoring our God. Father, please forgive us. Forgive us for thinking that you owe us when you don't. Forgive us for the times that we've run far, far from you and squandered the opportunities in life you've given us rather than giving it all to you. Father, we pray that we would see the nature of what you are like and what you've done in your son and that by your spirit you'd shape us each and every day to come running back to you. Father, let us see you and ourselves and this world through your eyes. Let us turn back to Jesus. We pray in his great name. Amen.